1: Welcome to another edition of Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. My name is Judson Pierce, filling in for Alan Pierce, who's probably sending himself on a beach in Florida right now. We're talking to you from lovely Salem, Massachusetts. I'm an attorney at Pierce Pierce and Napolitano here in Salem. And uh, we are bringing you another edition of Workers' Comp Matters with guest Michael Fanuel. Hello,
0: Michael. Hello, Judd. It's fantastic to be here. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks for being here. Mike has uh, been a friend of mine for 30 years. Uh, we are college grads uh, from Vassar College. And uh, for the last several years, he has been a marketing strategist guru <laughs> working at ad agencies <laughs> around the globe. Michael's uh, experience in this field is amazing. And um I just want you, Mike, if you could, just give us a little bit of your background and, and how you're doing and where you're working these days.
0: I'd be happy to, though. Uh, I'm not sure it's amazing, and I'm not sure I'm a guru. Uh, <laughs> I have been lucky enough to work at ad agencies for most of my career in New York, in London, in Minneapolis, uh, as a brand strategist, helping companies figure out how they could make deeper and more valuable connections with their customers. And I've had the chance to uh, create a few pretty pretty fun campaigns, including the most interesting men in the world for Dozeckis, and we have the meats for Arby's, and some fun work for, for Cadillac and Volvo and Charles Schwab. Uh, after doing that for a while, though, I crossed the Rubicon and I became a client myself. I was running creative marketing at General Mills helping big brands like Cheerios and Nature Valley get their groove mm-hmm. back. Uh, I left that job, though, to, uh, to, to do what I'd wanted to do for many, many years, which was write a book. And uh, I, I published a book last summer uh, called Stop Making Sense, The Art of Inspiring Anybody, which uh, you won't be surprised to hear is a book about inspiration and how it works and how we can move one another using emotions. And now uh, I am president of a media agency called Assembly, which is here in New York, but we've got offices around the country. So uh, that's my career in a nutshell.
1: Yeah, it's been an amazing career in a nutshell, and um, you were kind enough to speak to a gathering a group of lawyers uh, in Philadelphia last month. Thank you very much for coming to that. And I think you were probably the most uh, inspiring speaker at that conference to a group of lawyers who
0: really... That's very nice. That's very nice. (laughs) It's
1: so true. I mean, we are in our offices, we are with our clients, and we are in courtrooms across the country. And we rarely think about, are we doing the most to not only inspire um, the judges uh, or inspire our clients, but inspire ourselves to dig deeper into the law, dig deeper into our business practices and strategies. And I think that you really opened up the, uh, the book to that, uh, to put it mildly, you have a book on that, uh, which everyone should order on Amazon, like immediately after this program, by the way, what would you say in terms of helping the legal, uh, market, the, uh, small firm practitioner or the, the people like myself and like the others who might be listening, who are representing, uh, the injured worker, uh, what, what type of, uh, synergy might there be between what you do and, and what we do?
0: It's an interesting question, right? Because on the one hand, marketing wizards seem to be people who trade in emotions and passions and all of those energies that obscure cold, hard logic and facts and reason, which is which is the, uh, the, the, the realm of the legal world. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I wonder if it's a little more complex than that. You see, I as a marketer and and you guys as lawyers and probably all of us as human beings are really obsessed with the same question, which is how do we make each other move? How do you get other people to do whatever it is you think they ought to do? And it might be buy this product. It might be acquit this defendant. It might be grant this motion. It might be vote for this candidate. It might be order pizza with pepperoni on it for dinner, <laughs> but, but all of us in every aspect of our lives are obsessed with how do we get people to do what we think they ought to do. And I, I guess many millennia ago, the answer was simple. You use sticks and stones and brute force and, and, and arithmetics of pain and pleasure. But about 2,400 years ago, this, this guy Aristotle came along. And he said, Oh, that, that's doing it the wrong this way. Guy. <laughs> this guy, this guy, Aristotle came along. And he said, You're doing it the wrong way, cave people. He goes, We are rational animals, we human beings. And if you want to change people's behavior, what you've got to do is change their mind. And you change minds using reason. And evidence and logic and argument and facts and, and all the goodies, all the goodies in, in logic, you know, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. It's, it's sort of right right there in Aristotle in, in a book he published called called rhetoric. And essentially for 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 the last two thousand three hundred years, we've all bought into that. We've bought into the idea that if you want somebody to do what you want them to do, you've got to make a case for it. And again, that, that's not just something lawyers do in courtrooms, it's something we do uh, when we're arguing with our friends about what movie we want to see on a Saturday night. Or it's something that marketers try to do when they're trying to get somebody to, uh, to, to buy something, or, or certainly we've seen it in, in, in some of the presidential debates so far this year. You make a case. The problem is, it doesn't work. <laughs> And we know it doesn't work because we've read all of the books over the last decade. This golden age of neuroscience has illuminated how we really do make decisions. So we know that we blink, that we're nudged. Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize, talks about system one thinking, that unconscious, emotional, impulsive thinking Mm -hmm. that drives most of the big decisions we make. Oh, we certainly get to a point where we weigh the facts and look at pros and cons. Those are very, very weak forces in the face of our instincts, in the face of our guts and our prejudices. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's terrifying to imagine this uh, on the one hand, but everything we've been taught about logic and reason might sound so logical and reasonable, but it very rarely moves people. It never inspires people. It never gets the best out of people.
1: One of the things I really enjoyed about your book was you talked about your experience watching U2 live for the first time. And you you talk a lot about music in your book. Can you give our listeners a little bit of a taste of that first experience and and what you took away uh, from seeing Bono live on stage?
0: Sure, sure. So I I was forced to go see U2. I hated Bono. (laughs) I thought he was a pontificating, loudmouth, a sort of ego in, in leather trousers and weird sunglasses, but it was, uh, it, it was a dear friend's bachelor party, and I had to go see him. And, uh, and the show was exactly everything I feared it would be, with Bono preaching about ending racism, mm-hmm. sexism, and homophobia, homophobia and malaria, and HIV, and... And allergies, like you name it, Bono was against. Allergies. <laughs> is exactly why I detested the man. Uh, and yet I found myself transported. I was standing and my, my hands were in the air. And I wanted to sign up for Amnesty International. And I wanted to quit my job. And I wanted to go to <laughs> Africa. And I was thinking, holy crap, what is happening to me? Like, how how have I gone from hating this man to wanting to change my life in the course of an hour and a half of music? And it's when I got very, very interested in this idea of inspiration. Mm-hmm. And and face it, nothing moves us quite like music does. Mm. Right? Music literally changes what we do with our bodies, the way we tap our feet, the way we dance, the way we run. Music is such a powerful force. You, you might have heard about this famous behavioral psychology study called the Eye of the Tiger study. Yes. In, uh, in Japan, in the 80s, they took a huge team of telemarketers and they divided them into two groups. And one group before their shift listened to Eye of the Tiger and one group didn't. And the team that listened to Eye of the Tiger, you know how this ends, closed more sales deals. <laughs> and they've replicated the study again and again in different cultures across different generations with people who know the movies, uh, the Rocky movies, and those who don't. And the same thing happens again and again. Mm. There is something about the propulsive nature of that song that makes people more irresistible salespeople. And there are other songs that get you to run faster, and other songs that make you to swagger a little bit more, and other songs that make you cry, and other songs that make you laugh. Mm. Music has this amazing capacity to literally move us to change our feelings, to change our moods, and to change our behavior. And I I think what I've learned is that music does that by not trying to tangle with our thinky-thinky prefrontal cortex. Music sort of mainlines itself straight to our deeper, more visceral, more emotional parts. It doesn't get caught up in a tangle of argument Mm -hmm. the way arguments do. And, and I think we as communicators um, have a lot to learn from that. Uh, when you approach somebody with an argument, you uh, insist on an argument back. That's the way it works. Do this because I say this. And they say, well, I don't believe that, so I won't do this. Right. But there's something um, seductive, and I use that word on purpose. There's something seductive about the power of music. That I think is deeply effective on changing, uh, changing the way people think and feel and behave. Yeah,
1: you know, obviously we can't uh, bring in a boombox or our. Uh, mini, uh, you know, uh, whatever portable listening music device we're we're using these days, and 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 plug it into the courtroom and play "Eye of the Tiger" for the judge mm-hmm. and get the judge to go our way. And we can't be like Ally McBeal in her great show and listen to the songs in our head whenever some situation arises. Right. So how can we then um, use this power of say music or whatever else might you tap into that to get that? level of energy, to, to do our best work? Well, there are
0: certainly times when we all need to rely upon what Daniel Kahneman calls system two thinking, which is that rational, reasonable, logical thinking. And then I imagine, and again, I, I'm sorry, I don't know much about your world, but there are times I imagine when you're filing a brief, when you're making an argument, and the coin of the realm must be logical and reasonable. But there are other times where, I don't know, maybe there's a close call. Maybe there's a jury you need to sway. Maybe there's, there, there's a client or a defendant or a plaintiff that you need to sway in a certain way. Maybe it is yourself before you march into that courtroom. And in those moments when it's sort of emotional go time, I think that reason, that logic, that system two stuff gets in the way. Hmm. So, so in my book, I talk about these six skills of inspiration the things to develop that help you get to a place where you're capable of getting more out of yourself and more out of people because you're emotionally charged. And uh, one of them, for example, is all about ambition. Right? Nobody's inspired to do small things. They're inspired to do big, grand, delusional things. Uh, I saw this in my world of marketing. When a client, when a company, when a brand has a modest ambition, let's grow sales 1.5% next quarter, or when their ambition is, hey, let's launch this sub-brand to a new demographic in a new market, it might make perfect business sense, but it doesn't really result in the sort of marketing that moves people. No, 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 the brands that really do that kind of work are brands that think delusionally. So Nike says they want to inspire the athlete in everybody. And everybody who has a body is an athlete. And Dove says they want to make every woman in the world, no matter her shape or size or color, feel beautiful. Old Spice says they want to take pimply-faced 14-year-old boys and make them feel (laughs) like strapping, hulking men. These are delusions. (laughs) They're preposterous. But by being delusional, by being preposterous, they, they call forth what's wonderful about people. I mean, Lincoln was a lawyer, wasn't he?
1: I think he and, was uh,
0: You could trace <laughs> I think he was. You could trace the entire arc of the Civil War according to Lincoln's ambitions becoming more grand and delusional. from, "Can we have a compromise?" to "Let's just stay together," to "Let's emancipate the slaves?" to "Let's be God's perfect country on Earth." Oh my As Lincoln's gosh. ambition became more delusional, he invested more people. In fighting and ultimately succeeding, small small goals bring out the smallness of people. Mm. Big goals bring out their grandness.
1: Before we move on, and I want to tease this uh, by saying, you know, there was a there was a beer that you helped immensely uh, by targeting itself uh, in a certain way. So before we we have that beer, uh, we're going to take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. And we're back with uh, our special guest, Michael Fanuel. Uh, Mike, it's just so good to have you on the program because we're talking about things that we lawyers don't often think about, but we really should not just as lawyers, but as human beings, as communicators, as partners, as, as parents, uh, what you're having, uh, to tell us right now really plays a role in all aspects of our lives. And, uh, I do want to catch a beer with you right now. I wish I had one to open up, but you actually helped a, uh, beer company company. Uh, quite a bit, uh, not too long ago. Could you tell us a little bit about that campaign, what it was about, and how that applies here?
0: Sure. Yeah, it's the Dozekis story, and it's a good illustration of, of, of two principles of inspiration. So Dozecki came to our ad agency with a very modest ambition. They wanted to be the second best-selling premium imported Mexican beer in America, second best-selling. And Corona was going to be number one, and they were going to be number two. And Corona is about sunshine and the beach and chilling, and Equis wanted to be about nighttime and adventure and exploration. But of course, we quickly realized, you don't get to choose that. Nobody walks into a bar and says, can I have Corona or the number two? They walk into a bar, and there are dozens, there are hundreds of amazing oh, options. Gosh. And they're having them all. They're having good beers and crappy beers, and they're having martinis, and they're doing Jägermeister shots, and they're having scotches. And and we shifted the brief. We said, instead of being the number two premium imported Mexican beer in America, be the most interesting thing in the bar. More interesting than the other drinks or Uh brands, the people, the music, the stories, Uh the jokes they were telling be the most interesting thing. And that's that's delusional. <laughs> but again, that's that's how you create the most interesting man in the world, not some other interesting guy in a beer ad. But there's another aspect to this story that might be might be useful for your listeners, Judd. And that is the importance and the power of breaking the conventional rules. Remember that campaign with the most interesting man in the world. Mm. He is in old man (laughs) who says, I don't know anything about beer because I don't really drink it. It is the opposite of the way beer ads are supposed to behave. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to have young, cool people. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to have authorities on beer, people who know the ins and outs. Here's an old guy who goes, oh, you got me, but I kind of like this one. That moment of disruption, that moment of breaking the rules is so, so important if you want to move and inspire people, because when you show up in exactly the way. It catches way,
1: people's attention.
0: It, it is. It is. And, and it's not just attention getting, it's opportunity mm. making. So when you show up in a way that looks like you did yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before that, people don't have a sense or an expectation that something new can happen. They're literally uh, in a rut, in a routine. This is the way it's always been. Their mind, in a weird way, are closed. So, so breaking rules is um, is really powerful. And this happens in really subtle ways all the time, as you know. Mm-hmm. right? When a coach says, hey, team, take a knee. Or when a manager says, hey, come into my office, uh, take a seat, and close the door. Or when a boss uh, comes to work and they're not wearing a coat and a tie, or she sits in a different... Area of the conference room at the conference table than than than, than the boss usually sits. Mm. Right, these are a little subtle ways in which people show up to stir up some possibilities.
1: Yeah, you also credit David Bowie as possibly uh, bringing down the Berlin Wall. And, and that story that you wrote about in your book is so fascinating to me. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened there? And, and it's it's actually true, right? It is. It
0: is. I didn't credit Bowie with bringing down the Berlin Wall. Germany did. <laughs> when he died, the German <laughs> okay. Foreign Office, the German Foreign Office tweeted out, uh, "Goodbye, David Bowie. Uh, thank you for helping to bring down the Berlin Wall. You're amongst heroes now." And uh, I didn't remember that part of history, so I went back and and, and tried to learn a little bit about the story, and uh, and and quickly, you know, in the late seventies, David Bowie was in a bad place, strung out, unhappy with his career, and he went to West Berlin to uh to to, to record an album that he wanted to be his masterpiece, and they were recording in a studio just a stone's throw from the Berlin Wall itself. In fact, it was an old rundown Nazi ballroom, an old Nazi party place, but it it was a hovel now. Mm. And Bowie had one song, which was this really experimental instrumental number. And it had like whirring synthesizers and clanking ashtrays, and it was really funky. And one night as Bowie was mixing this, he looks out the window and against the Berlin Wall, He sees a man and a woman going at it, making out hot and heavy. And right above them, he sees East German soldiers patrolling with their rifles. And that one image of love and romance and violence and guns all sort of wrapped together completely inspired him. And in a matter of minutes, he wrote all of the lyrics to the song Heroes, We Can Be Heroes Just For One Day. And that instrumental number got 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 its words. Now, the next day when the band came back to the studio, David Bowie was so excited to share these words with them. And the producer had a great idea. He said, let's make funky use of this giant ballroom. After each verse, when you sing into the microphone, David, I'm going to move the microphone 10 feet away. And then after the next verse, 10 feet away. And after the next verse, 10 feet away. So that by the end of this song, In order for you to be heard, you're going to have to be screaming. And and if you listen to the recording, by the end, David Bowie is screaming his lungs out. Now, what's interesting about this is that musicologists tell us that music itself, which we think is such a weird and mysterious art, is really just human sounds artfully arranged. So, so, so a climax in a song has the same sonic properties as a human scream. Minor notes sort of echo babies crying. That, and that's really all that music is. It's, it's human emotion expressed in an interesting and artful way. So fast forward to 1987. Bowie goes back to West Berlin to do a show. And he's playing right there at the Brandenburg Gate, right at the Berlin Wall. And in the course of the show, he hears that thousands of East Berliners had gathered on the other side of the wall, Mm. and they can't see him and he can't see them, but they could hear each other. And for his encore, he says he's going to do his Berlin song. He's going to do heroes. And then he is screaming through the Berlin Wall at these thousands of people oppressed by this system that they can be heroes. They can be heroes. They could take destiny into their own hand, even for a day. Now, literally three weeks later, Ronald Reagan comes to that same spot and says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Mm. And I might be naive, Judd, but I'm going to believe David (laughs) Bowie got the job done. (laughs) I'm going to believe that when those stones were chipped and chiseled and chunked away, what people were hearing in their heads was David Bowie, not Ronald Reagan. Because oh, that's what neither does. Yeah, I'm with
1: you on that. I'm with you all the way on that as a big David Bowie fan, one of my first shows of the Glass spider tour in 1987, and how big and outrageous that show was. Yeah. Maybe that was the maybe that was the same tour. Could have been. It, right around that time. But what you said right there really sort of hit me, and, and we're close to closing, but I really want to turn this back to what we do as lawyers every day, what we do is um, uh, go out there and help folks who have been feeling oppressed by the system or their their mm. bosses have fired them be- just because they had an accident on the job or they feel betrayed because their credibility is being called into question and the insurance companies are saying that they didn't actually get hurt. Um, mm. So you really need folks to step in and be their heroes or even inspire your own clients to be their own heroes to really make some movement happen.
0: Right. Do you know what's amazing, Matthew Judge? I, I hadn't thought of, of that really critical part of the job that you guys do, but, but it's awesome. And you're right. At some point you need to cross T's and dot I's, but at some point you've got a desire, maybe even an obligation to make the people you defend, you advocate for feel, feel fantastic. And, and one of the skills of inspiration that, that we haven't talked at all about, but it's really, really germane to what you're saying, is actually all about love. It's really hard to inspire people if they don't feel like you are on their side. And the mm-hmm. very best way of showing that you're on their side is by identifying the thing about them that makes them awesome and unique and special. I call it their superpower. The ability to look at somebody and go, I see something in you that is awesome and valuable and then tell them that, geez, talk about something that's disorienting, it breaks the rules and it's emotional and like, that's when inspiration is possible.
1: Well, that is absolutely amazing and something that we can all take Uh, a lot of consideration of and, and try to inform our practice more about it. It's not about building our practices so much as just building up the people who are in our practices, our coworkers, our clients, um, because then all of that sort of snowballs and materializes into a bigger practice. If that's what you want, or just a more, you know, sound practice. Um, Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of detours that law takes us down and, uh, most of us, I think, became lawyers to do good and to inspire and to sort of bend the pendulum of justice a certain way when it gets too... The
0: arc of justice. Yeah, Yeah,
1: when it gets too bent out of shape, you have to bring it back into equilibrium a little bit. So Michael, again, I want to just Encourage in, inspire everyone out there to go on Amazon or go to Barnes and Noble or go to your local bookshop and get Stop Making Sense The Art of Inspiring Anybody uh, by Michael J. Fanuel. It is a fabulous read, a quick read, and a fun read. You know, you, you end up laughing kind of like, uh, I don't know if you read him, Bill Simmons. He's kind of a pop culture guy who talks a lot about <laughs> yeah. sports. Well, that, that's flattering. And, uh, <laughs> well, I hope you take it that way. A lot of people don't like Bill Simmons, though. So, but as a I Boston... Do. Oh, God. Uh, you, he knows basketball. And I know you like sports, too, Mike, like tennis and such. But uh, give my best to you, your family. Happy New Year to you. And I'd just like to end this show by... Uh, oh,
0: thank you, Joe. Yeah, thanking... Likewise. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. This was a ton of fun.
1: It was. It was. Let's do it again sometime soon. I want to thank our sponsor, PI Now. Uh, find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the United States. Visit PINow.com to learn more. And I'd like to thank Mike again for joining us. Uh, and those, for those of you listening out there, please tune in to our next show and go out there and make it a day that matters. From Salem, this is Judson Pierce. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on The Legal Talk Network, hosted by Attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on The Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk.